scorer. And the stadium erupts. Downing running to build the fullback. Whips a great looking ball in. everyone and welcome to another edition of the Borough Mag podcast. I'm editor Rob Fletcher and I'm here with another great guest to talk about their memories of the Borough past. If you are listening to this one today on release, we are still taking pre-orders for volume four of Borough Mag. You can find us at boroughmag.bigcartel.com. We are still supporting my sister's place with this issue who support domestic violence victims in Middlesbrough. It's a fantastic cause. So any of the proceeds that we make from these magazines goes to that charity. So if you could order yours, that'll be absolutely amazing. This week, I'm joined by a guest who you'll know from Borough Social Media. You'll have read lots of things of his in Fly Me to the Moon, in the Borough Mag, through his website. It is Ian Smith. How are you doing, Ian? Not too bad, thank you. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? Yeah, no problem. Um, I'm doing all right, actually, Ian. Um, So we're going to try and go through your sort of journey in your time as a Borough fan, like we try and do with all our guests, taking in how you got started as a Borough fan, all the way through those glory days, thinking about how you got into writing and being sort of on social media, chatting about Borough, because that's obviously quite different for us and something that we we quite enjoy doing. So I know you're a Borough fan from outside the area. So how on earth do you become a fan if you're not from the Borough? Uh, well, got, got, well, got, got my dad to blame for that. Basically, it's his fault. I mean, I think that's probably the same for a lot of people who don't live in the area. They uh, obviously draw on the, the family as uh, a point of blame. I don't know if he uh, cast a curse on me or what, but I mean, I obviously wouldn't change it now. But yes, uh, my dad was born just in a little place called Yerby Village, just outside Middlesbrough. Um, and then eventually made his way uh, down to Doncaster in the early 80s. And I was born in 84. So yeah, and all I can sort of remember as a kid was just that the house was Middlesbrough mad. I mean, he converted my mum from being a Leeds fan to a Borough fan, so <laughs> that was some feat as well. Uh, he's got powers of persuasion, I'll give him that. But yeah, he, I can just remember being given a shirt as a kid, and that it kind of felt like even then at, what, three and four-year-old, that this was it then, you know, basically. And But because I didn't know any different as well, starting school and, and all that sort of thing, it was... To me, at first, it was strange. No one else really was interested in Middlesbrough. But obviously, my geography when I'm five and six-year-old isn't great, obviously. So you you sat there thinking, well, why, are, why is no one supporting the same team as I'm supporting? Sure, you know, that they're, they're a big team and et cetera, et cetera. But no, so it kind of set me up from a fall from the word go, really. But um, yeah, that's how it came about. Got, I remember still remember my first shirt, um, the, the Heritage Hampers one. But um, I still picture sort of Stuart Ripley bombing up and down the wing in. Uh, I've got that, still got it actually. My son wore it to his first Borough game last year, last season. So, so yeah, and then basically from then on, obviously just got went, 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 to, went to, got a season ticket. I think my first game was in 1990. Uh, my dad's insistent that I've been beforehand, but I can't remember any games before that. But yeah. I think the first game I remember, and the one I always say is my first, is the, the Leicester City game where we won 6-0 at home. But perhaps it's my perhaps it's that one because I can remember it for obvious reasons. But yeah, um, and then throughout school being the odd one out, basically, as I'm sure most people can relate to if they don't live in the area and, and getting all the stick that they get. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly interesting. I mean, now as someone who doesn't live in Borough, but sports mills, but it's a bit different. But when you're a kid, you kind of get used to everybody supporting the same team as you, don't you? you what do, was that yeah. like sort of traveling up? Did you travel up sort of and stay for the weekend or were you literally just up for the match and then are you visiting family or what? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, we had a, a caravan in, in Saltburn. Uh, so every other weekend we used to be up there anyway and we stopped the whole weekend. Um, yeah, we used to go and see a lot of family. Uh, my granddad, my dad's dad used to live in Hemlington. So we used to go and see him quite a lot after games. So yeah, it was every other weekend we'd travel up and um, I'm not sure if the club still do it now or they might have a different version of it perhaps. But I know in the, I think it was the 91-92 season, uh, my parents were awarded the best traveling supporters of the year award or something, which, okay. sounds like a very, which sounds like a very niche award, which I don't imagine many other clubs were probably doing at the time. Um, but yeah, it was just recognition for the fact that we used to travel up from Doncaster every weekend or every other weekend, as I say, uh, a round trip of nearly 200 miles or whatever. 
And I can still remember now being stood on the Ayrson Park pitch. And I think at that point we were sponsored by the Evening Gazette, that Heritage Hampers were still around. Mm. And we got presented with like a big hamper full of all sorts of stuff. And I can still see it now on the living room floor and opening it up when we got home and thinking, where's all chocolate? There's no chocolate <laughs> in here. Um, but yeah, and, and that was a bit of a surreal experience. And on the same day we got to meet um, like our heroes, basically. So mine at the time was Stuart Ripley still. Um, my brother's was Jamie Pollock. So we got to meet those. And I can just still remember, I think I must have been, what, seven by that point? And just being overawed by it all. Um, but absolutely loved it. So, yeah, we used to go up every other weekend, stop in the caravan, see family. Um, and, like, weekends as well, uh, weeknights as well, like, my dad would get us out of school early. Um, so I used to get a few where... Uh, a few jealous nods from some of my classmates that I used to get get out of school early, get up to Borough, because my dad likes to be early for everything. We probably could have got there on time regardless, but he'd have us there like a good couple of hours before kick-off to soak up the atmosphere and, and all that thing. And I think that's where I got my enthusiasm from, because my dad's basically like a big kid. He's 75 now, but he is the biggest Borough kid you can imagine. Um, so all the autographs I got as a kid everything like that was all through my dad pushing me to the front. And I think he probably enjoyed it just as much as I did. Um, so I'm trying to sort of impart that a little bit on my uh, lad Lucas now. So uh, yeah, so that's how it came about. And I can remember many late nights coming home on the weeknight games and then going to school absolutely knackered, but it was well worth it because just to see the Borough play at Ayrson Park or at the Riverside. Um, but yeah, and obviously you try and chat with your classmates about it and your experiences, but they weren't bothered because they were all Liverpool fans or Man United fans or Sheffield Wednesday at the time, back in the 90s, being a Donny lad, it was Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, a few Leeds fans are knocking about. Um, so yeah, naturally I used to get picked on, odd one out, Borough fan and all that. But yeah, so we were dedicated fans as kids. My mum and dad still go now. Uh, I don't get as often as I'd like to because of family commitments and work, but I'm hopefully going up next weekend for the Sheffield United game. So that'd be nice to take me, my son up with me as well. Um, so yeah, the passion still burns on today. It must've been quite an adventure then that it's not just, I mean, a lot of Borough fans who live in Middlesbrough, you, you've got your own routines and you've got your own rituals, but it's quite a big thing if you're traveling that distance and then sort of coming up for a full weekend, it kind yeah. of increases the sort of experience of being a football fan, doesn't it? I suppose. I'm assuming you probably were getting excited on the Friday night as you left school or whatever and you've got that sort of drive up and you're probably talking about the football what yeah. did that feel like when by the time you got to Ayrson Park on on the Saturday what are your memories of being in the ground and like you say soaking up the atmosphere have you got any sort of really vivid Ayrson memories yeah there used to be a chippy just down the road from the um the ground um forgive me if I can't remember the actual street that it was on but I'm pretty sure now I don't know if this is like an urban myth or something but <laughs> I'm pretty sure my dad said that I think Steve Gibson's uncle used to run this chippy, which was just down the road from Ayrson Park. So we'd always go in there before kickoff. So it's it's things like that. Listening to like Daniel Gray when he talks about mm. like the rituals and stuff and the and the routines you go through, all the sights and the smells. I can still remember walking into a chip shop, getting all that sort of the smell of the chips, the the, the newspaper and all that sort of thing. It's mm. it brings it right back to me now thinking about it. And then you'd walk from the chippy up to, we used to get, we were sat in the, the main stand. So you go down the cobbled street where the gates are as well. And I can just remember walking down there and every time thinking it was like coming home. Yeah. And then there's the, and once again, forgive me because my local knowledge isn't particularly great. Um, but there was the school next door to the stadium, wasn't there? Mm. And I can always remember saying to my dad, why can't I go to school there? But it's great hmm. there. They'll obviously all be Borough fans. They'll have the Borough kit on. And my dad's like, well, obviously we live 100 miles away, son. It's not entirely possible. So it used to upset me a little bit that like, I, bet, I bet they're all great. I bet no one gets picked on there because they all support the same team. And um, so, yeah, them sort of things. And walk into the ground. I can still remember you going through the famous gates and like just bumping into players as if it was bumping into someone random. And it being mm -hmm. that easy to get a picture with your heroes. I mean, obviously, early doors, it was for me, it was people like Ripley and uh, Robbie Musto. Paul Wilkinson, John Hendry. Um, yeah, and just bumping into them sort of people and, that, and how much of a buzz that was, even for a young lad then. And I think I was probably made aware of just how much of a big deal it was by the fact that my dad used to just push us towards a player and go, there you go, son, get a picture, get a picture. And he'd be there with camera or, his, or he'd get his camcorder out, which back in them days, I used to roll my eyes quite a lot. I'm like, dad, put it away, will you? Um, but now looking back, I'm so glad he was 
mm. insist on that sort of stuff because there's so many memories that I mean, obviously my, my, own, my own memory will bring them back to life somehow but to have them actually to be able to watch back as well uh, but yeah and obviously there's all the sights and smells that you can remember from Ayrton Park you know the very dodgy urinals the smell of Bovril and all that so all those sort of things that you know very cliche but yeah I think most Borough fans have got them in common and they can remember those sort of things yeah, what sort of things do you remember about the the game and the players at that time? I think when you're a when you're a young kid, it's it's difficult to pinpoint whether the football is actually any good, just because <laughs> you, you're watching it and you're kind of taking it in. And there wasn't a lot of football on TV to compare it to. It just looked like you know this is an exciting match or you want the team to win. Have yeah. you got any really memorable games apart from that that first one against Leicester? I mean, there must be some from the the Premier League year all up to Robson. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's. Uh... Obviously, 91-92 season. I think that was the same season that I think Slaven scored after 17 seconds against Sunderland, where I think, I'm not sure who played the back pass to the keeper, but it, it cocked up and then that was quite funny. remember that really well. Obviously, going into the Premier League season, you've got the Leeds United 4-1 game. remember yeah, that vividly. Yeah. Thinking, even back then as a young kid, thinking, wow, that's a massive result considering yeah. Leeds had only won the title the year before. Um, but mainly for me, I think you're right, Rob, that as a kid... It is just generally, you know, you don't really take much notice of what's going on in the game as such. It's how many goals go in. That's all you're really mm. interested in, the chance to cheer. But I think even from a young age, though, I think once I got past sort of eight and nine, I started studying games. So, like, my brother, he'd shout his head off and my dad would shout and even my mum to a degree. But I'd probably sit there quite quietly and I'd sit there and study the game and actually watch what all the players were doing, uh, trying to take it all in. And that's how I discovered that I wanted to be a winger as a kid because I used to watch like Stuart Ripley bomb up and down. And that's where I've got like my favourite numbers, number 11, because that's what I used to wear. And he'd play, I'd play on the wing and that's how I modelled my game on him. Just big, fast, strong. I'd try and do exactly what he did. So yeah, I would stare at him. And, and obviously in the later years, it would be Alan Moore. I'd watch mm. how he played as well. Um, but yeah, no, and I think what everyone else says as well is walking up the steps and just seeing the, how green the turf was. Mm. you know it just hits you as you as you come up the steps um so yeah i can remember that there's but i've got tons i mean to be honest i probably don't think you've got enough time for a podcast for the, <laughs> amount, for the amount of memories that i could tell you but i've been a mascot at Ayrson park that was special uh in the 93 94 season myself and my brother were mascots for the wolves game at home um i still remember walking out onto the pitch before the game uh just thinking crap there's about 18 19,000 fans out there and <laughs> I mean obviously I know we weren't playing or anything but it was just yeah, so yeah. nerve-wracking but I came up booting the ball around on the pitch with Andy Peake who was the captain and thinking this ball's like made of cement it's rock hard but obviously you know I was only what 10 9 10 year old yeah, yeah. so but yeah special memories and then you obviously go on to like last the last ever I mean obviously it's uh Stephen Perry's testimony was the last ever game but the last ever league game the the Luton one to this day is probably my favourite ever Borough memory for, for many reasons I mean obviously there was the emotional side of it leaving Ayrson Park I didn't want to leave to be honest mm. I mean obviously knowing what we know now it was the best thing for the club but I come crying my eyes out <laughs> and even my dad well, I mean, obviously like, you look at your dad and think they're quite hard don't you but even my dad was like you know misty eyed and brushing away the tears so I remember stuff like that and after the game, because we we were lucky enough to get the... Um, my dad had paid for to have the hospitality that day as well. All right. So I don't know if anyone's ever seen. I must have posted it a million times, but I've got a few uh, videos on YouTube from the day uh, that have come from my dad's camcorder. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff on there. Just close-ups with uh, people like Brian Robson, Craig Ignett, Johnny Hendry, and um, we were lucky enough to be able to go and have a meal and that sort of thing. And after the game, long after everyone had gone home, I think I've said this on another podcast that we spoke about. Mm. Um, just lucky enough to go on the pitch and never run around. And and like I say, to this to this day, I don't know how nobody could find a football to kick about. And I'm absolutely gutted to think about it now. It still pains me. Um, but yeah, just to get them sort of... It was really weird. Just stood there and there was just nobody about apart from there was like Ali Brownlee and Gordon Cox milling around and one or two other people from the club. But it was such a privilege to be able to walk out there where so many people had done for the previous 92 years. And just to stand there and think how lucky I was I to get that opportunity. So yeah, Ayrson Park will always will always hold special memories for me. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing, isn't it? As a club who 
have had two football stadiums because there are, there are quite different sets of fans. Like we're quite similar in age, but I don't really have as many vivid memories of Ayrson just purely because I didn't go as much. So most yeah. of my memories are just tied up in the Riverside. And like yeah. my match day routine is parking near the Regvardi roundabout in the industrial estate, walking underneath the bridge, walking past the navigation pub. And then we were the West Stand. So then you'd walk across the West Stand. Like it wasn't like walking through terraces of houses. It wasn't like go the, you know seeing different things beforehand. Purely because I just didn't go there. And it's quite interesting yeah. that there's that there's two very different eras for a lot of fans, isn't there? And there's probably for a lot of more modern fans, the post-2009 fan. So, you know, since we got relegated, it's a very different fan. It's, and even like from McLaren onwards as well, it's quite interesting having that sort of difference, isn't it? How did how did your feelings change, I suppose, as you started to go to the Riverside? You said just then about you were kind of a bit uncertain about leaving Ayrson. What was that like when you, because obviously you're still doing the journey to the Riverside. What what did that feel like? Uh it felt otherworldly, to be honest, because I know obviously at SA you may have gone uh, when they had the port cabin outside the when the stadium was being constructed and they had all the um, computer screens and showing you what it's going to look like. And it just didn't feel like um, it didn't feel like Middlesbrough, to be fair, because obviously all we'd ever known was a what was soon to be a dilapidated ground. But it was all we'd ever known. So it, it felt really strange. And I, I mean, I was excited. Don't get me wrong, because. I was looking at other stadiums around the country and thinking, wow, we're going to have a, you know, one of the very first new build stadiums that has been for, you know, for many a year and it's going to be amazing. So I was excited, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't until I took my seat on the first game against Chelsea that I was entirely comfortable with the idea of us being in a, a brand new all singing, all dancing stadium. I had worries about whether we were going to fill it. Um, Cause even though, Last game at Ayrson, we I think we got twenty four and a half, twenty five thousand, whatever squeezed into there. And knowing what I know now as an adult, obviously you know that fans are going to turn up for those sort of occasions. So at the end of the day, the opening of the Riverside was never going to be a damp squib. It was always going to be a you know a packed out stadium, and it was going to be a great atmosphere. But even my dad said to me, "Oh, I don't know, son, if we're going to be able to fill that, you know, what was at the time was it 30,000 30, at the time, weren't it when we first yeah opened? thirty thousand, I think when it first opened, yeah, yeah. So I think we were. I can remember him saying to me, "Oh, I don't know if we're going to do this like every week. Is it going to, is it going to be half empty? You know, because he'll have he'll remember the times, and I remember the times of Anglo-Italian cup ties and three thousand people turning up. Now, obviously, we'd gone on from then and become quite successful under Robbo, but it still have that. And I think we see it now, don't we? When the like, we've been through the Strachan years and um, Woodgate and stuff, where the crowds do dwindle, and the Riverside can be a pretty hollow shell when it's." You know, not even half full. So I think that was the worry to start with. But I needn't, I needn't worry because obviously the way Rob, where Gibson and Robson were taking us, we're always going to be getting full houses every week for that couple of seasons, and then uh, you know the big names that were coming in. So I think I just got swept up in all that, and before you know it, you got that used to your surroundings. That not that you forgot about Ayrson Park, but you'd moved on from it, and now the Riverside was your home. Um, and yeah, driving over, driving over the bridge, and and just seeing the ground from the distance or whatever. I think, like I say, not that I'd forgot about Ayrton, but I'd, I'd definitely got swept up in the excitement of the Riverside, so it was quite easy to move on in the end. And we've talked at length on the podcast and in the magazine and stuff like that about how the team changed and how the whole club changed. But for someone who's in their youth who was seeing that change, it's quite strange as well, because I know other people we've spoken to have talked about like the, the mid-70s or the early 80s, where it was very, very different. But it was quite a big upward trajectory, wasn't it? From if you say when you probably started remembering going to the game, if you like, like 1991 onwards. I know we had the disappointment of getting relegated from the Premier League, but I don't think that was the, that wasn't the same, was it, as getting relegated now? You just kind of thought, well, do you know, what? we got relegated, we probably got quite a good chance of getting back up again yeah. at some point in the next couple of years. Whereas now it feels like a bit of a death sentence, doesn't it? <laughs> I was going to say, there's that feeling of jeopardy now, isn't there? You just. Yeah. You know, you feel like if you get relegated, if you don't jump back at the straight way, that you, you could be down there forever. But I think I felt like that a little bit when we got relegated in '97. Uh, mm. um, um, that's why I've often spoke about Olsen being one of our biggest value for money signs ever. Because I think had we not got promoted in that '97 '98 season immediately, part of me does think that we may well have ended up hanging around in the second tier for a little bit longer. So I know I'm shifting things along a little bit, but yeah. That, a little bit of me thinks now that 
that could have well happened to us and we could have never got back up at that first opportunity. And then who knows what would have happened. But as it happened, we did. And we end up staying in the Premiership for another 11 seasons. And I think I think we do forget as a as a, a fan base, possibly, that from like 95 to 2009, we only had one year out of the top flight. And I yeah. think there's, I think I read somewhere that we're like, the, if you go on points, we'd be ranked 15th in the Premier League based on like all time since in the last 30 years, which yeah. for a club our size who has bounced between first and second division, I think it's pretty good. We're, we're still a, a big, I think we're still a big club in terms of out of 92 professional clubs, we're probably in the top 20. And I think we're probably about ready to get back up there. But that time, that Riverside time, especially the Robson time, we all know about, you know, 96, 97. Have you got any other little nuggets that you kind of feel like you really remember or games from the Riverside that maybe aren't as popular or maybe not as sort of talked about as much? Because I know I certainly remember, like, I know it's a big game and it's a, it's a, a massive game, but the semi-final second leg against Liverpool in 98, yeah, I don't feel like gets enough praise because they were a really strong, strong team at the time. We were going well in the first division. Have you got any of those games where they might have still been big games, but you can really remember the game, getting into it and what happened? It's an unusual one, but the second leg tie against Stockport in the 96-97 mm. season, we obviously we got beat on the night, didn't yeah. we? But I can, remember, I can remember thinking back then, typical Borough, we're going to go and yeah. screw, it, screw it up. <laughs> um, but no, I remember that really vividly, actually. So... The, there was a family in front of us at the riverside, and they'd snuck in a, a bottle of champagne. For them out. I don't know. You wouldn't. You would never get away with it now. But they snuck in a bottle of champagne and like a, a million plastic cups to hand round. And I can still remember at full time just popping the champagne cork off and just pouring the champagne around. And I don't think anyone was that bothered. That mm. I think if the stewards had seen it, they weren't fussed because I think we were just celebrating the fact we'd we'd reached a major final. So I think anything it was that kind of anything goes. So, yeah, it's a strange one to remember with it being a defeat on the night, but I do remember that really well. Just remember the unease when they scored. And I mean, at the Riverside, it could be a horrible place to be when there's mm. that, that sort of general feeling of crap, here we go again. Or, yeah. And even now, thinking about it in a weird way, it's given me goosebumps thinking about that sort of just that feeling of sitting there thinking, what's going to happen? Are we going to screw this up? But yeah, that's probably one of the games that sticks out where. I, I imagine for lots of other people it doesn't, mm. uh, even though you know it probably should in a way. But yeah, and other than that, you've obviously got it's it's hard to look beyond. I mean, also Janino's debut was another one. For yeah, me. Um, and I know it gets talked about a lot, and I know it's probably quite easy to reach for. Um, but for me, that will always be one of my favourite ever games mm. because obviously, not being a local lad, I wasn't there when he was paraded around the riverside, which I yeah. can still remember. We managed to get time teas as a kid in Donny because my dad had some sort of, I don't know what he'd done, there was some sort of receiver or something, that, a massive aerial, I don't know, but we could get time teas in Doncaster. So I can remember seeing him being unveiled. And even then I was bemoaning my dad thinking, well, why can't we, why can't we live up there? I'd love to have been there. Mm. Look at the atmosphere. They've got the Brazilian dancers out. They've got the drummers mm. out. They've got it all going on. And then he said, oh, well, we're going to game, you know, obviously against Leeds, son. So don't, you know, got your fix then sort of thing. So I can remember just buying the flag a Brazilian flag and draping myself in that um, and trying to sort of memorise the uh, motto on the flag. Um, I'm going to butcher it now, but is it Odem de Progresso or something like that? I think yeah. it says on the flag. I remember saying to my dad, oh, I've got this flag. I'm you know, well into this like. And, and my dad, even though it's the most positive, optimistic, full-on Borofan you'll meet, he does have this sort of pessimistic streak running right through him. And I think it might be just typical of his uh, his era, but he looked at Janino and went, nah, too small. It won't last long. Knocked off the ball. He'll cry off back to South America after six months and we'll, that'll be it. Um, and I remember saying to him, oh, bloody hell, Dad. I mean, a way to try and, you know, sort of take, you know, um, take the excitement out of the situation. But he didn't, he didn't knock it for me. And I kind of just remember being sat there and then watching him come on and obviously I'd, all the foam fingers were flying around and all that sort of stuff. That's another thing that I can remember quite well of the early era at Riverside. Just... It seems to be every other week there was flags or foam fingers or something going on. And yeah, and then just watching Janino strut his stuff and thinking this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. Um, I mean, obviously we'd been spoilt with uh, the fact that we got Nick Barnby in the summer and I was just as excited about that. In fact, he'd gone, I'd moved on from sort of Alan Moore to Nick Barnby within a split second as being my favourite player. Uh, 
but as soon as Genio came in, that that was it. it. Was I was just completely obsessed. Um, so yeah, Leeds, the Leeds own game when he when he signed, and obviously that Stockport second leg for for the reasons I've I've outlined are ones that I can just remember early doors at Riverside. Yeah, and I think some of those players. I mean, you can almost go down down the list of season by season of stars, can't you? You can go 95, 96, Janino, followed by Ravinelli, yeah. followed by Merson. 98, 99 is a funny one because we didn't really go out and buy a star, did we? Really, not that's really, no. I know we had Rickard and Dean, not really stars. But then the following year, we go for Christian Zieger. Now, I know both of us are, are big fans of Christian Zieger. And I think, Huge. Yeah. obviously, he left under a bit of a cloud. But in all honesty... Can you say leaving to join Liverpool is under a cloud? One of the, the, well, the biggest club probably, not at the time, but probably overall the biggest club in England, maybe joint with United. I know that there's all the stuff that went on behind the scenes with agents and whatever else, but he was yeah. an unbelievable player, wasn't he? Absolute oh, class. Yeah, I mean, and also with him being a left footer, because I'm, I'm left footed myself. So any player I could try and watch and try and not compare myself to, obviously, but to try and learn from. Um, it, and obviously left footers are more rarer than right. So I always had a natural affinity with any left footed player we ever signed. So yeah, no, just, I mean, obviously I just play football manager like most kids at that, at that age as well. So I've seen him playing for Bayern Munich and AC Milan and thinking, wow, you know, and 4 million quid back then was, whilst it was a decent sum of money, it felt like an absolute bargain for somebody of his sort of qualities. So yeah, no, and when he came in, in fact, actually my, one of my favourite ever Riverside memories or like sort of images in my head is just Zieger in that 99-2000 shit, which I know you're not a massive fan of. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it just sticks up there that, you know, he's, I could just see him. In fact, the, the opening game of the season, we actually got beat, didn't we? I think it was against, yeah, Bradford. And I remember thinking, Christ, he's dropped up from Milan, signed for us, and he's probably wondering, what the hell am I doing here? Dean Saunders has just bagged a goal for Bradford at last minute. And we've lost one on the opening day. But yeah, no, I mean, such as Christian Zieger, I think Paul Insat season was another fantastic signing that I think goes under the radar quite a lot. When you're picking your all-time Borough 11, um, I've had to wrestle really hard when I've thought about it in the past about whether to include him or not, or even on the bench or anything like that. But yeah, we kind of had a, a season, like you say, without any star signings as such. It was more sensible, functional, do-a-job sort of signing. But yeah, no, the 99-2000 was a back to sort of Robbo's favourite sort of thing. He loved a Maverick, didn't he? So mm. uh, I, would, I would definitely put Zieger in there as a Maverick. And his move to Liverpool, in isolation, you can't argue. Why, why, why would you want to stay at Middlesbrough when Liverpool come knocking? Mm. And that's not being derogatory towards mm. Borough. We, we know where we yeah, stand. Yeah. We know where we stand in the, the footballing pyramid. So, And it was the same with a few years later with Zenden as well when he went to Liverpool. I can't understand the Ferrari then because... Yeah, you were disappointed that he's decided not to stay, but one of the biggest clubs in Europe could knock in. You're not going to say no. And it might not have worked out for Zieger in the way that he wanted it to, but I think he'd make the same move again, even though I think he's since admitted he may have left too early. But that's that's with the benefit of hindsight, isn't it? So Yeah, and I, and I think what where we were at that period of time, we weren't attracting your Ravenelis and Emsons because most of the, of the Premier League had more money than us by that point. We yeah. had We were kind of equal footing with a lot of people in the mid-90s. But really, we only got people like Zenden and Ziga because they weren't performing at the level they should be. So yeah. we were the only club that would take them in both those cases. And Ziga obviously was a, a bit of a cheaper fee, but it was always going to happen that they left. And I think Ziga probably should have had another year because I think the following year, Boxage signs, doesn't he? Yeah. And I think, you know, someone like that up front with someone like Ziga, and we bought Joseph Job and whatnot. And I think that would have been a little bit different, I think, if Ziga had said. Zenden's a bit of a different one because he probably moved at the right time, didn't he? Because he only took a two-year deal, didn't he? Or a two yeah. one-year deals or something like that, one-year loan and one-year deal. But moving into that McLaren era, the quality of player overall just stepped up, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Previously, yeah. we'd had like pockets of really top players in certain positions. But this is where, I mean, when I remember when we signed Southgate, I was a little bit like, well, this is a bit of a boring signing. So I'm used to just getting all these stars. And then I think I must have been, what, 16? So yeah, six, 15, 16. But then you think, well, actually, 
he's miles better than any defender that we've ever had. Yeah. Like this might actually be better than buying a ten million pound striker that I've heard of on Championship Manager. It really did start a change and the wheels were in motion for something much bigger when McLaren joined, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think you were mentioning there about Southgate perhaps sounding like a or feeling like a bit of a boring signing, but I think at that point you were mentioning you're about 15, 16. So I'm similar age to yourself. So it's when you're starting to understand the game a bit more yeah. about it's not just about flashy signings and, and flicks and tricks and flair. It's about the overall team. And at that point, we had in McLaren a, a tactician. So somebody who, who knew how to set a team up, which he obviously went on to prove rather well with us. So you could start to appreciate the different facets of football rather than just your Janinos and your Avanellis and your, your Zegas and what the flair they brought. You, you wanted a bit of a functional um, might be a little bit base for some people, but you need that sort of you need that to keep you grounded because I think that's one of the problems we had massively, wasn't it? When in 96 97, we didn't have a, a solid footing at the back and that killed us completely. So hey, it's an old adage, isn't it, that you should build from the back? And I can still remember, I think Southgate, he had, was it choosing between I think it might have been between us and Chelsea? I think Chelsea were in for him as well. I think so, yeah. And I remember thinking, wow, we've just picked Chelsea to one mm. of the best English central defenders there's ever been, you know. And, and will ever be, as far as I'm concerned. That's maybe with a hint of bias, but mm. um, but yeah, I mean, and Boxic's career sort of tail-ended into McLaren's era, didn't it, as well? And just harking back to Boxic signing, okay, not he's back into sort of flair, Mavericks sort of status, but we're just privileged to watch him in the flesh. Fantastic week in, week out. And we really had the makings of a... A brilliant team, a brilliant squad. You know, later uh, Ekiog came in. I can't think. I can feeling about Ekiog the way you probably felt about Southgate, thinking, yeah. But then again, as soon as you saw them two together, mm. I don't think there was many better sense about parents in the Premier League. In all fairness, no, it is interesting when you look back, and um, obviously, people are probably thinking these two haven't got a clue what they're talking about. Thinking <laughs> Southgate was a boring signing, but when you're 15, 16, you've grown up on waiting to sign a, a marquee player every summer from somewhere in Europe. Yeah. It, is, it is a big shift. And it does, like you say, as you understand the game more, as you get older, and that's what we're, we're basically doing, is you're kind of reassessing how you look at football, aren't you, from, from now to when you were younger. And it that's did right. feel like a bit of a sea change that we spent. I think Southgate was, was Southgate 6 million or 6.5 million, I think. It was, so a, yeah, around, around, that, around that market. And yeah. we'd, we'd spent like 14 million pound on basically Aston Villa's two central defenders. Yeah. Over a period of whatever nine or ten months, and it did, sorry, it did take a bit of a shift, and it was it was very different for us to start getting used to maybe looking at something that was a little bit more secure. And I think that's one of the things that McLaren did, didn't he? he made us a little bit firmer in thinking we're at least mid-table, not yeah. like we're mid-table down, but we're mid-table looking up. And I think for all Robson did that little period between '98 and 2001. We were kind of mid-table looking down, weren't we? Yeah. Thinking we're probably going to get enough wins to be at least thirteenth or whatever it is. Whereas McLaren, it was more maybe not the first season, but after that, it was a bit more right. What's next? What's the, what's the step that we're going to move up to? Um, that McLaren, who were your favourites? Who did you think you were just always looking forward to watching in his teams? Because you got people like Mendieta, Zenden, Hasselbank, Baduka, Downing's. Uh, bursting onto the scene, you got Frank Cadreau, Schwartz is in his prime. Who were your Who were your favourites of the, that sort of big five year period? Hard to pick out just just a few, really. There's that many of them, isn't there? I think when you look back at sort of Middlesbrough teams past, a lot of people's favourite elevens are going to be dominated by that McLaren era. So you're going to have, like you say, the players you've mentioned there. I mean, Schwartz has seen it all. He went from like Robson era right through to, you know, sort of Southgate's uh, time in charge. But, yeah, I think for me, favourite players really was uh, across the front. So, obviously, your Vidukas, your Hasselbanks, your Kubus, Macaroni for obvious reasons. Um, but, yeah, I can be just thinking when we signed Mendieta that that were bonkers. I mean, Janino may have been bonkers because he was the Brazilian player of the year. Ravinelli because he scored in the Champions League final. And I think even though, obviously, we got used to those functional signings under McLaren, to still be able to pull that sort of rabbit out of the hat. And I can, <laughs> I can remember bit, he got unveiled. I think it was, I can't remember what game it was now. I wonder, was it, an, was it Arsenal at home? Or am I, think, am I misremembering that? 
when M- Mendieta and Danny Mills got um, back, I'm just thinking what a clash of cultures that two people that sort of jar, you know, Danny Mills, functional right back, hard man, English, Mendieta, flair man, one of the most expensive players in the world, played for Barcelona, played for Valencia, played for Lazio. And here we are, you know, it, they represented the two faces of Middlesbrough, you know, trying to be a functional, effective unit, but at the same time, still wanting to sprinkle out a little bit of flair and, and get the fans inside the ground. But so, yeah, we, we were still able to do that sort of business. So, yeah, people like Mendieta, but it was more or less the, the front three, front four that, that captured my imagination throughout McLaren's tenure. Yeah, it's. I was just checking there. It was, yeah, 2003. So that's nearly 20 years ago now that they signed yeah. for us. It's mad, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? Absolutely crazy, yeah. I can still yeah. remember, yeah. It's, it is. It was at the Arsenal game, yeah. Yeah. I, I... I hated Arsenal in that period. Did you hate Arsenal in that period? Oh, my word. I remember going to the semi-final. At Old Trafford, that was McLaren's first season, wasn't it? And that terrible kit with just the, the pinstripe across yes. it. And my, the Michael DeBev game. You, you must fe- have read my mind. It's about to say yeah. DeBev as well then, yeah. The, the Fester own goal. Oh, just... I remember going to that game and thinking, we're back here. Because obviously, yeah. we, my um, most people know have listened to the podcast, my first period was black, is 95, 96, 96, 97, going to the cup finals, yada, yada, yada. And then... All of a sudden, that kind of stopped, and then all, and then two thousand two comes around. And you're like, "Where are we back now? Like, is it are we, are we back in like the big time again? Like, we've got a big semi final at Old Trafford. We probably deserve to beat them as well, actually. But yeah, that was um that was an interesting one, wasn't it? What was your um? Did you get to go to many of the European games as they came round? Early doors, yeah. I mean, one of my biggest regrets actually is not being able to get to the um, obviously the games that everyone remembers, you know, the Basel and the, and the Stour games. Um, it came at a time in my life where I was, I probably had other priorities. I just got a little bit older, um, settling down a little bit, full-time job. Most of my money was being spent on going out on a weekend, doing all sorts of stuff early 20 lads do. Um, and I think because obviously all my friends are fans of different teams from around the country, I think if we'd all been Borough fans, that's obviously a completely different and we would have been there every week doing it day in, day out. But because basically my my life revolved around where I lived. I missed out on a lot of stuff because it was a case of, I just wanted to go out with lads. And obviously, you know, it meant that weekends were the big thing. So weekends, it meant I was drinking around Donny or York or Leeds or whatever. But I'd still obviously be following Borough just as, mm. as ardently as I'd ever had done. It just meant that I wasn't able to get to as many games as well. So it is a big regret of mine that perhaps I didn't make, I wouldn't say more of an effort, but I didn't make more time. Uh, at that point, but I remember going to some of the early European games. I went to the uh, was it Skoda Zanthi when Emerson mm. played, was it? Yeah. And there was the Lazio game, obviously when Zenden scored twice. Um, which actually, obviously for the, for the Maggot, I did a piece with Zenden didn't I? and speaking to him about that, about how what his memories were. Um, it was pretty special. So yeah, it's kind of took on a whole new meaning that game for me now. Um, but yeah, so I went to a few of the early ones. But yeah, the biggest regret of mine as a Borough fan is not being able to get to such as the, the Basel and the Stour games. I'm sure there could have been ways I could have done. Um, but you live and learn, I suppose, don't you? I mean, yeah. I don't suppose I'd change it. I don't suppose I'd change things too much, but if I could have squeezed it in, I really wish I'd just been in that little bit more of a more time for it. Yeah, I think it's probably an interesting time, that one, because I know that I'm similar to you. I went to uni in 2003 and moved out of Middlesbrough and stuff like that and missed a lot of that period. There was probably a lot of the fans who were, like, younger kids around that time who would start going to the borough when they were, like, 9, 10-year-old. We all sort of came of age, like, 18, 19, 20-year-old, all around that time when we, went, yeah. when we were in Europe. And a lot of probably fans went away from home, but maybe not as much at home, because if you look at some of the attendances... They're really not as high as you'd expect them to be. They weren't sellouts even. I think no. I think even the semi wasn't even a sellout. But I mean, I, I suppose that's typical Borough in some ways. We never, <laughs> yeah. we never, we never go to the game, do we? But um, as that sort of period progresses, you know, the Strachan and Mowbray and all that sort of bleakness and Southgate. Um, when does the when does the writing bug start for you? When do you kind of start thinking that? you want to start talking about Borough or you want to use that as a vehicle? Is that something that was always there? Or I remember 
I used to, it's quite funny, isn't it? Ironic. I've, I've got like old football magazines that I'd made myself when I was younger and I'd written poems about Borough and me creative writing book or, you know, and my teachers had written I was football mad and whatever else. When did you start sort of feeling that, that bug of wanting to write about Borough and share your experiences? Uh, I'm very similar to you. So people obviously can't see this, but I'm, I was nodding my head vigorously then because I'm pretty much the same as you. Uh, as a kid, when I used to play Sunday League, I'd often write match reports when I played, uh, going to stupid amounts of detail that no one else was ever going to read and it didn't really matter to anybody else but me. But um, my English teachers always used to whinge because I'd shoehorn Borough in at any opportunity. Um, any free writing assignment where you could just get on and write anything you wanted would revolve around football at least. But if not football, it'd be mainly Middlesbrough as well. Um, so yeah, from early on. And then I used to do a fair bit of sort of writing at school, as I say. And then as I got a bit older, obviously, you know, your interests sort of change a little bit or you, you haven't got time for certain things. So you, you go out and do what young lads do. So yeah, I kind of knocked it on the head for a little bit, not consciously, but it just it just sort of fell by the wayside a little bit. And then about, what we're talking now, about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, I started up like a, a blog that only lasted for a couple of months on Facebook, actually. Um, but I was writing more about the wider issues in football, just uh, stuff about the hot topics of the day, not so much about Middlesbrough as such, but more about other things. I think I came around a big article about when Andy Carroll signed for Liverpool and that sort of stuff. I wouldn't dream of writing about, writing about Liverpool these days, but um, yeah, just stuff like that. And that kind of got my the bug going again because I was getting some decent feedback from it. But at the time, I probably was a bit naive and not knowing what platforms I could have had for my writing. So I was doing a lot of, putting a lot of effort into writing, but the small amount of feedback I was getting was good, but I wasn't getting the reach. So it kind of disheartened me a little bit. And like I say, probably a bit naive because I knew Knowing what I know now, there are other avenues that I could have gone down mm. a lot earlier. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then eventually uh, I started, I think I joined Twitter, I think it was uh, September 2016, just the start of the uh, Premier League season when we went up. I think it was a whole going up under Karanka. I think it just sort of pushed me to just get writing again. And, and I started writing. I think my first piece was in, I think the first piece was actually the January transfer window with Sam Patrick Bamford. I think I was pushed aside that because I was a massive Bamford fan anyway. So even as a grown man, I think I uh, almost cried tears when he, rejo- when he rejoined. So <laughs> just the whole story about Karanka saying come home and all that sort of thing. Mm. And really played, really played, uh, played well for me. So I, I think I, the first article I wrote on my blog was about Bamford coming back and how it was great for the club, etc. And then, yeah, I just realised that had I joined Twitter a good number of years earlier, I may well have been a few years on and, and I might have got my stuff out there a lot earlier. But it's Twitter really that's kind of pushed me to keep going because I've been able to get in contact with people I never thought I'd, or never dreamt I'd be able to get in contact with. Um, and then obviously met people like yourself. And that's been one of the greatest pleasures from it to, to make friends with people who you'd never have met in any other walk of life. Mm. So yeah, it just sparked the bug. And I did a few bits for my own blog. Uh, I wrote for a couple of sites. I wrote for one borough and did a bit for, everything MFC, which at the time didn't realize it was Dana that was doing it. Mm. Um, and it took me last year to realize that was actually her that was doing that. Um, but yeah, so wrote for a number of things. And then I remember there was a piece that I'd written, must have been a good 10 year ago, but it was about Sunday League football. Just my sort of rose tinted, cliche ridden memories of Sunday League football. And Rob Nichols from Fly Me to the Moon picked it up and he quite likes the, the writing style and, and the sort of, and I can remember him just asking me one day, oh, do you want to start writing for the fanzine? And that were massive buzz for me because I still remember going as a kid and seeing who I know now to be Rob outside the ground, flogging the fanzines at that mm. time. I didn't know who he was. Um, but I always remember my dad saying, oh, that's, you know, fly me to the moon. That's like, why is it called that dad? And then obviously he'd tell me the story about Bruce Rioch and a mogger and that. And yeah. And then, I think it's just opportunities like that that's pushed me on. And then obviously during lockdown, when you started up Boramag as well, um, very grateful to be asked to come on board with that. And that's just just giving it a whole new lease of life for me. Now, I don't knock the articles out as much as I used to for my own blog. I don't know if anyone really follows it these days as such, but I haven't written anything since I think last year on there when England reached the quarters or the semis of the Euros. 
um because just commitments these days they probably slowed it down for me um but yeah i mean i love the fact that people like to read the pieces i put out there when i do put them out it's a still one of the biggest thrills to get some great feedback um obviously you don't always get great feedback yet people disagree with you but i quite like that uh, it's, a, it's a game full of opinion isn't it so but yeah i always had the passion for writing from an early age and and now i've got the tools to be able to to do that it just keeps pushing on i don't think i'll ever get bored to be honest yeah i think it's a great thing isn't it it's always healthy especially with social media that there's so much that you can sort of distill into whatever it is 280 characters whether it's your match opinions or opinions on players or I know at Borough Mag we try and we mainly don't really focus on the modern stuff but share stuff from the past and whatever and it is quite good trying to tell stories in that way and I think that's what we try and do with the magazine and, and try and use different voices that are written for fanzines and other websites and stuff like that and it's, it is great to see all the different people that are out there and I think it's you know a reasonably healthy social media for Borough in terms of what people put out put out there yeah the social media side of it can be a little bit extreme, can't it? It's more like, you know, he's yeah. the greatest player in the world or he's the worst player in the world. But I think that's quite typical with a lot of football Twitter, isn't it? But if we skip all the way to this season, so we're just recording this. It's just before the QPR game, actually. So we both think it's going to be a, a win, hopefully. And I'm mm. going to go out there and say Force is going to bag a couple of goals on his full debut. But what do you make of... Um, of Chris Wilder at the moment, what's your, what's your feelings about Wilder taking over from Warnock, Kieran Scott arriving, um, you know, a lot of people making us favourites for the title, never mind just promotion. Um, <laughs> Crazy I know, sort of that, isn't I it? Know you, I know you're quite a, a positive fan, you're probably a little bit like me. Um, how are you feeling? Uh, well, like, yeah, definitely very positive. I mean, I was just saying off there before we came on that I think having Chris Wilder as manager, uh, despite the squad obviously not being anywhere near complete yet, as it's well documented that we're still a good four or five signings away from being a you know a, a strong unit. Um, but having Warnock, uh, not Warnock, bloody hell, Wilder in charge. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, having Wilder in charge, I think he just adds that sort of extra sort of buzz and 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 that gives you that bit of a leg up. Now you can see obviously in in the papers or online or the betting companies. They've all got us as favourites purely for the Wilder factor. Because I think if you didn't have, if it was a different manager and that was our squad at the minute, you'd probably say, eh, eighth, tenth place or, uh, you know, an outside push at top six. But I think the, the I think Chris Wilder just ele elevates you that extra, extra little bit. And I think he will get, as long as he gets the players he wants, he will get us up. I'm fully confident of that. And now, Obviously, I'm not a huge fan of Sheffield United, but I used to love watching their games just for the way they played. He always felt that Bramall Lane was an intimidating place to go. And, I mean, you saw from his first season in the Premier League with, with Sheffield United, how they took everyone by surprise. But they really shouldn't have been surprised in a way because just from the way they played, just difficult to play against, but exciting to watch. And I think he's, he's already got us exciting to watch now obviously with Jones down one side and, and now with Giles down the other we've made some really shrewd signings this summer I mean Zach Steffen for me probably could go on to be the best keeper in the league this year um, even his backup in Liam Roberts you know most clean sheets in league two perhaps should have been a league one keeper mm. had Northampton not lost out on that freak uh, weekend at the very end of last season so yeah, we picked up some great signings I mean I think Fors when he got when Brentford got promoted uh, got into double figures, but it weren't even a regular starter. So we've made some fantastic signings, and I'm liking the the recruitment strategy at the moment. You know, lots of people are saying, "How oh, go for the same old same old names that keep getting recycled every single summer." But we've been crying out for years for creativity in the transfer market and looking where other clubs might not be looking, or even if they are, it's more on the quiet and it's players that are a bit more niche. And I just think we've been crying out for the, the Brentford model or the Brighton model or that, that sort of thing, you know, buy low, sell high. And, and now we're getting it. I think some fans, I don't think they know what they want because now we're getting that. They're now anxious for the fact we're not getting more established players, but I'm more than happy. Even if we don't get promoted this season, I think Wilder's definitely here for the long term. And I think the players we're bringing in or will be bringing in, they are, they are going to elevate us eventually. And we will be a Premier League team again. 
you know, it might not be this season. If it is, then fantastic. And I'd dearly love for it to be that way. But even if it's next season, give these players a chance to bet in this season, do the thing. We might fall up short. Um, I definitely think if we finish outside the top two, we probably will come up short again because Wembley is just not our, it's just not for us. I don't think, I don't think it ever will be. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm ultra confident about the future. And I think, like you say, I'm probably one of the more positive Borough fans. And that is a, a stick that I get beaten with quite a lot, that I'm perhaps a little bit rose-tinted. But I don't think it is that. I think it's just, I like to think I'm quite balanced in my view. I'm prepared to accept that, you know, there's it's not always roses in the garden. But I think some people always look for the negative no matter what. And I just think, surely it's better to be on the other side of the coin. And I think at the moment there's lots to be positive about. So... And yeah, starting this afternoon, I think we'll probably come away from QPR with my prediction this afternoon is probably, I'll, I'll go 2-1. I think we'll always concede a goal, maybe, the way we play. Um, but I can see us coming away 2-1 this afternoon. Yeah, it's an interesting one in terms of trying to be positive about the club. I mean, my opinion is a bit like, I support the club, I want them to do well. So I think that, especially more, more recently... We, we seem to be getting more decisions right. And I think that's very cyclical for the Borough. We got Karanka right on the pitch. Maybe off the pitch, it wasn't always as, as good as possible. <laughs> but not. I mean, very much I, I'm feeling the 2014-15 vibes with this group where yes. you're, signing, you're signing players, but a little bit more unknown. Like we forget that we signed like Kike. I had no idea who he was. Vossen, yep. again, not really had any idea who he was. We had people like Lee Tomlin who were in the side. And Sue. <laughs> and Sue, they weren't really established names. And obviously, we came up a little bit short, but the following season, you can then bring in your Stuani, your Nugent, your Downing, your, you know, the players who think, actually, we are more than likely going to get promoted this season. So if I play for these, I'm more than likely going to be in the Prem. If we finish third, maybe get to Wembley or something, it might be that you get a few more players who want to join. Because at the end of the day, we didn't finish in the playoffs last season. We finished 10th the season before that. Was it 14th or 15th the season before that? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We, we've got bad memories of being with Pulis. We were irrelevant when we were in the Premier League. Yeah. So really, and we're in the North East, which obviously is a detractor for a lot of players, wrongly, yeah. but it's still a, you know, a negative for some of them. And I think like Yusuf, there was a tweet last night that the last two summers, Brentford have made £105 million by selling two players. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's that's who we have to be. We have to be a Brentford. We have to be a Brighton because that's just as um, innovative as we were in '95, getting Barnby and Janini on Ravenel. That's that's the new version of that. It's just yeah. different now. We're not going to compete unless we get. And I talked about this with Neil Granger last week on the podcast. I'm really scared when Gibson has to sell up or he's not in charge anymore because <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a very, it could become a very, very different club. And people might say, well, that's for the better. We'll spend more money and blah, blah, blah. But we've just got to be careful what we wish for. But I'm like, you, yeah, I'm very positive about how we're doing. I think we're going to get in the top two this season. I think he's going to get the players he wants. We play good, exciting football. We're going to be on the telly loads and it's going to be a, a really good season. I think, so, um, sorry to jump in again, Rob, but um, I just think as well, the, I think the connections back between the fans and the, the team as well, which is very sort of Karanka era-esque as well. Um, the passions there, uh, the players seem to want to engage with the fans as well. And so, yeah, there's that, there's that connection and it does have them vibes, but I think it's a lot more, we're a lot more a stable club than we were back then as well. It's only, I know it's only just a few years ago, but I feel like the, we're on a, a sound footing. I think Gibson, even though you don't see him that much these days, I think the enthusiasm from him's back a little bit. Because I think for him to be bringing in Kieran Scott and, and that sort of stuff, it shows that whilst it might have took him a little while to catch up with everybody else, which is the only thing that surprised me a little bit because he's always been willing to push the envelope as Gibbo and mm. be at the forefront of change and, and be innovative. But it's took him a little while to catch up with the rest um, with the rest of the sort of teams in the, in the, the league that are wanting to progress. I think the the Malaysian setting. So yeah, I think now obviously we're, we're in a much better position. Like I say, the connection with the fans is back. It's it's only going to go one way, and as I say, if it's not this season, it most certainly will be the next. Yeah, totally agree. Right, having spanned your your time right up to up to the present day, now is the moment that you've been waiting for. 
So obviously I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, all the way through your time as a fan, to pick your Borough 11. Now this could be your favourite players. It could be the actual best players in terms of they had the best times in their career. However you want to do it, there's no hard and fast rules. You've just got to name 11 players and one of them has to be a goalie. So I'm going to let you start and I'm going to make a little note. I've got a, a little note of all the teams who've been picked so far, actually on all the podcasts. I right. think it's at some point we might have to try and do some kind of podcast where we try and come up with a Borough 11, which would be quite good, but I feel like you'd have to do eras. You'd have to have like a, a 70s and 80s Borough team and then like a Robson team and McLaren team because otherwise yeah, I think it'd just be absolute carnage trying to pick a, a Borough all-time, wouldn't it? You could do like a little Twitter poll, couldn't you, of everyone's to see yeah. if you could like sort of pin them off against each other. But I've been deliberating for last week about this. Anyway, just in general, because I've been inspired by a recent podcast that I've listened to of, of Borough Mag and obviously people have got, like you say, very varied... Um, like depending on what era they grew up in and like you say, what, what players I saw. Uh, but a few years ago when I got married, I was given the one responsibility for uh, the wedding, which was to name the tables. And my wife probably wishes that she'd not given me that responsibility because <laughs> there are various names that she looked at and were like, who the hell is that? And how does someone pronounce that? And I even asked her if I could set out the tables in a 442 formation, but <laughs> that, that got swiftly denied. Um, but yes, so... Going at it, I've not really changed since then. I, so many days, you could ask me on a different day, I might give you a different answer, but I think I always come back to this team. So starting in net, Mark Schwarzer, you know, he's seen it all. Um, you know, obviously 10, 11 years at, at Borough. Um, could have left a lot earlier than he did, chose to stick around. I don't think you'll see many better keepers for consistency in the Premier League area, era than the obviously the obvious ones that play for the, the bigger teams, but he could have easily played for a top three, top four side and, and wouldn't look out of place. Um, I mean, I've seen I've seen Stephen Pears play and, and obviously another fantastic keeper and should have had an England cap. But for me, I just think for longevity and for what we achieved, Mark Schwartz is number one. Um, Centre-back pairing, I've gone for Gareth Southgate. I think we've, we know all we need to know about Southgate and... You know, apart from his managerial time with us aside, just purely for what he achieved with us as a player, um, he'd be my captain as well, um, which would might be a little bit controversial given who he's playing alongside as well, because some people might think that the next centre-half would be the captain. But so yeah, Southgate lifted our only ever major trophy. So I think he's a, he, he can't, if, you can't, if you don't put him in your team, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what's going on there. But Tony Mowbray playing alongside him. Now... Purely for my earliest memories of watching him and the fact that he is a bit of a hero to my dad as well. I think that kind of plays into it a little bit. Um, I mean, really, my dad was saying, oh, you should have picked Stuart Bone, but obviously I never saw Stuart Bone play football. I can only go on what my dad's told me, but we've both seen Mowbray play. And for me, hard as nails, but good on the ball, actually. Um, but yeah, just an all-round good egg, local lad, um captained us through a you know a really difficult period in the well the bleakest period in the club's history. Um so for me, you've got to have someone of his character in the dressing room as well. So them two at the back. Full backs, I'm gonna throw a bit of a curveball because I know right back is a bit of a a difficult one because we haven't we haven't been blessed with many great right backs. I know Danny Mills gets mentioned quite a lot, but even though he's a great right back, we only had him for a season. So I'm gonna go with Curtis Fleming purely for the fact that much like Musto in midfield, perhaps, but Fleming, he's, his Borough career spanned so many different eras and he somehow still managed to turn up week in, week out and get a game. Or for me, I always seem to remember him playing and he never looked. Now, for some people, he wasn't the greatest or the most um, easiest on the eye to watch, but he was a consistent performer. And I think at right back, because we aren't blessed with that many great ones, I think because of what we achieved while he was playing for us um, and he managed to keep his spot in the side when we could have quite easily usurped him with better players, uh, I think he deserves his spot in there. And at left-back, I've gone with Christian Zieger, which almost feels like cheating because because <laughs> he's not a left-back, is he, really? Um, no. More wing-back, more winger. Could play, he could play centrally as well, but for me, got to get him in there. I mean, you could have argued Frank Quadro, maybe another one, but... Mm. 
Seager for me at left back, and I think that goes without saying. That's a pretty pretty strong back line. So we've got Schwartz, uh, Southgate, Mowbray in the middle, Fleming right, and Seager left. I just think, imagine Chris Wilder had got his hands on Seager. Oh, just in this team, it'd be absolutely unbelievable. Different managers, different eras. I know it, oh, it does yeah. uh, does give you different ideas, doesn't it? Um, midfield, I'll start with centrally. So I'm going to go with George Boateng. Yeah. Um, I feel bad for pushing Musto out, but I think Boateng had the lot. Um, doesn't get enough credit, actually, for how good he was on the ball. Mm. And he could pick a pass, but it was a, a destroyer in midfield, an enforcer, break-up play. Um, very much like our version of what Chelsea's N'Golo Kante was for mm. them, or Makaleli even. Mm. He did that job for us really well. Um, another leader in the dressing room as well. And I think, and they don't come much harder than George Boateng, because <laughs> he may be a lovely bloke, but I, don't want, I wouldn't want to go on the wrong side of him. So, yeah, Boateng. And then out wide, I'm going to go with Stuart Ripley on one, one side. He's, these are interchangeable, these two wingers. They could play either side. So I've got Ripley on one side and I've actually gone for John Hendry to play on the wing. Right. So obviously in his early days, the chant on the terraces was always Johnny Hendry on the wing. And I know obviously a lot of people remember him being a striker, but you could play, it was equally adept out wide. So Ripley and Hendry, Ripley being a hero of mine, that was, he was always going to get in no matter what. And I just think the fact that he went on to win the Premier League title at Blackburn tells you that, you know, it was a quality, quality player in his day. And had it not been for injuries, probably would have played for England a lot more than he did and perhaps should have played for England more than he did. Um, and then everyone's favourite, Janinho. Mm-hmm. So we've got the two wingers, Boateng sitting in midfield, Janinho sat behind the front two. I don't think there's much more I can add about Janinho, really. What is often talked about, people know his qualities. Um, and I can understand when people say, you know... Uh, Depending on what formations you've got, is he really gonna is he gonna get lost in that team or is he gonna hamper the team or whatever? But I just think if you can't shoehorn Janino into a borough side, what's going yeah. on? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Possibly the greatest, well, the great to me to my mind, I know people say Wolf Mannion or, or George Hardwick, but we're going back, you know, almost a century. Um in my mind, Janino is the greatest player to ever pull on a borough shirt. Mm. And I'm gonna sound contradicting to me when I mention my strikers and I might talk about one of them and who I remember more fondly than Janino, but to me, Janino technically is just probably the best play we'll ever see and are likely to ever see in a Middlesbrough shirt. Um, so I think we've peaked there. Uh, and up top, I've gone for Bernie Slaven, purely for the fact he's still, what, the last person to score 20 league goals in a season? Yeah. I don't think we, and that's a quite a damning, to say we've had the likes of Asselbank, Viduka, Yakubu, Macaroni, mm-hmm. And we've played in championship and we've had all sorts of different weird and wonderful yeah. players up front. We've still never managed to get a 20. Bamford nearly got there. Yeah. I thought he was going to, but never quite reached it. So yeah, Bernie Slaven, poacher, predatory instincts, could score in all manner of goals. We as Ed, maybe not we as right foot, but we as left foot definitely. Was offside quite a lot, but <laughs> I'll forgive him for that, for the fact he scored, is it quite famously 147? He likes to mention that quite a lot, doesn't he? But yeah, 147 goals. And he's going to play alongside Alan Boxic. Right. So this I wrestled with this a little bit because obviously uh <laughs> thing with Boxic was, you know, it depended on what, what version of Boxic turned up was depending on how we were going to play that week. Mm. But for me, and I know I mentioned Janino is the probably the greatest player. I think Janino is the greatest player, not only with talent, but with the impact he had and, and how much he lifted the side. But I would argue that Boxic was a little bit more talented I don't know if that's going to go down well with a lot of your listeners but I just think there's something about Boxic for me it was just pure magic the way he, he did things effortlessly just chipper keeper just looked like he just it, it was the sort of thing he looked like he would be doing on training ground mm-hmm. but he just turned up on a Saturday afternoon I still remember that goal he scored against Leicester at Filbert Street ran from halfway and shrugged off a couple of players and the keeper were like almost on his line and he still lobbed him so that's probably one of the goals I play the most on YouTube quite a lot. Um, so, yeah, even though Janino is probably the greatest player I've ever had for impact and stuff, I still think there's something about Boxic that just slightly tips in for me in terms of overall talent. I just think, obviously, we got Boxic at the tail end of his career, which is the only reason we got him anyway. Um, so that probably, you know, makes my reasoning sound a bit folly. But, yeah, so that's that's my 1-11. to 11. Now, 
I have got subs. I'm allowed subs. You can have some subs. <laughs> How many subs can I have? You can have three. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, well, you've got to have a keeper on bench, aren't you? So yeah. I've gone with Stephen Pears on bench. So then I'm going to go with. Hmm. I picked seven subs because I was going like modern day substitutions, <laughs> but I'll, I'll keep it short. Yeah, Pears, um, Jonathan Woodgate, yeah. who probably the, probably should have been the best defender we've ever had, mm. except for injuries. Um, yeah. And possibly should have been one of the best defenders England's ever produced. Mm. And then it's a toss-up really between... I once spoke about Adama Traore being the most exciting player I'd seen playing for us since Janino. But so he almost gets in just because he got me off my seat constantly. Yeah. And Paul Merson's in there, but I'm going to go with Mark Viduka just for the fact that the guy was pure class. Shouldn't really have been playing for us. He was in the peak at the peak of his career. Mm. Um, and as I say, I don't say this like I say derogatory about Borough, but he should not have been playing for us. It was far, far too good and would not have looked out of place playing for Arsenal, United, Chelsea. Um, but we were lucky to have him. And yeah, I'd say him, he's basically, it's basically a toss-up between him and Boxage up top, but Boxage just pips him just for the uh, the, romantic, the romantic way I look at Boxage in terms of how he played and how graceful he was. Yeah, he um, was a pretty incredible player, wasn't he? And Viduka the same as well, his touch, his turn. You know, the goals he scored. But again, it's another fantastic team with different players from a lot of different eras and a lot of different success as well. So I really appreciate that, Ian. And thanks for giving up your time to come on the podcast. Always good to chat to you as well in terms of your experience as a fan and, and how you came into writing as well. And if you do want to read more from Ian, obviously do check out his his blog. Make sure you follow him on Twitter already, which hopefully you already are. He's got a new piece coming out in Volume 4 of Borough Mag, which you can still pre-order on boroughmag.bigcartel.com. And Ian's writing all about Ravenelli's debut, which is a, a pretty famous one. Um, yeah. Hopefully we'll get a couple of good debuts like that from Strikers. But Ian, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. No, that's great, Ian. Thanks a lot. And if you have enjoyed the Borough Mag podcast this week, please do remember to like, rate, share and review. Tell your friends about us and we can keep on making these podcasts and like I say, please do get your new Borough Mag.